Hey guys, welcome to the Better Building Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Perry, and here with me today is Nick Taliska, Mark Sankey, and back with us again is STEAM expert Chase Bean with STEAM Management. And if you guys haven't tuned into our previous episode about STEAM, uh, and you don't know who Chase is, I'll let him give himself a little bit of a, a quick introduction about himself and STEAM Management. So Chase, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Clayton. Uh, my name is Chase Bean. I'm the Director of Engineering for STEAM Management. We are a, uh, a design, build, and, and consulting company that focuses on steam system efficiency. So um, excited to be here today and talk about steam system efficiencies. Yeah, and we're excited to have you. Um, so yeah, for any new listeners, if you haven't, check out our other STEAM episode. I think that was a really nice discussion. And then we're going to kind of continue the conversation today about you know energy conservation at the point of production. So I think a good starting point for this is to set the stage. And as we all know, steam is produced with a boiler. And, you know, as I was kind of putting my thoughts together for this podcast and for our listeners, I think to put it out there, what what is the optimal efficiency for a steam boiler? Because we're going to talk about different ways to improve efficiency of a steam boiler throughout this podcast, right? Um I don't know, like what is for you guys best case scenario for a large steam boiler for efficiency? Is it, you know, in the 75 to 80% range, 80 to 85? I'd be hard pressed to think you're getting more than that, but I could be completely wrong. What do you guys think? Yeah, have it's to say? it's kind of uh it's kind of all over the map, you know, based on the type of, of boiler and how old it is. I think for most fire tube boilers, you're gonna be 80 to 85 percent efficiency. Right. So if I if I'm running numbers and I'm seeing or or maybe even just getting a, an efficiency readout of something in the 70s, then I know there's opportunity there. But like larger boilers, like coal boilers, it, it's all like when was it built and what was the price of fuel at that time, and that drove their decision as to whether to get, you know, to install an economizer or combustion air preheater or you know to feed water heaters or things to really make it efficient. You know, and then so the coal boilers and biomass boilers can be all over the place. Um, they can be down to like 70% or up to 85%. And then you have condensing boilers that can be up to 98% efficient, which is kind of a whole different animal. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's really all over the place. So there's, uh, there's, uh, it's interesting to figure out where the opportunities are when we get into these systems. So are you, Chase, are you distinguishing between uh, total overall com uh, efficiency or combustion efficiency? I'm talking about combustion efficiency. Um, yeah, point of use efficiency is is a whole different metric, and that's a that's a great point. There's a lot of losses in the system, uh, and, and that's something to evaluate, you know, if you're looking at maybe removing your steam system or, or evaluating that, you need to know what's the actual usable work here. And then there's like like in a power plant, there's input output method, right? Where you're um, actually just comparing fuel use to electrical generation. So there's a lot of different ways to look at it. And, uh, you know, that's where like I, I love to do like a heat and mass balance on a plant and really kind of pick it apart. But yeah, but or you can just look at the control screen of the boiler and say, if you're talking about at point of generation, this boiler is not operating efficiently, you know. And there's opportunities there. What if the boiler doesn't have a control screen? We were just in a project where the boiler master had never worked. Yeah, then you're going to take readings. I mean, you can get efficiency from stack temperatures. Right. 
comparing stack temperature to ambient air temperature and the amount of flow. You can also just like look up data from the manufacturer. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's a common thing that we're doing. So or to get like yeah. a baseline or what it should be doing or. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, assuming the boiler's clean and, uh, you know, it's heat transfer. So the, the amount of heat transfer in the boiler, if you can determine the flows coming in and out, I mean, you can, you can get pretty close, like a pretty close estimate on what it's doing. So it's, there's also, uh, I mean, I would say the incentive for investment to improve efficiency you know, there are plenty of places I've been in that the boilers have, you know, their their um, museum pieces never been touched, you know, barn fine in the car world. You go in and you look at it and, and they're great shape, but they're original equipment from 1960 or 1970. And then you go in other facilities and there's been investment over time to improve that efficiency. So... I mean, you have to draw that distinction, but uh, Chase, you've been in a lot of boiler plants and I, I don't, I'm not really taking this in a political direction, but do you see a big difference in public sector versus private sector efficiency? I mean, this is a, you don't even have to answer this question because it's kind of out of the blue. I was just thinking about it this morning. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, in the in similar facilities, like if you if you were to compare like a VA hospital to a private hospital, I would say there may be more opportunities in a VA hospital. Otherwise, like a lot of our, if you were going to call it a private customer, it's like a, it's oftentimes like an industrial customer or something like that, where it's like completely different. Yeah, they're they're looking at squeezing every nickel out of everything they own, which is yeah. you know to there to be credited for that, but I think. You know, uh, uh, the public sector less incentivized to um, invest in efficiency, even though it, it makes good press. When you go in the facilities, it's not always the case. When you say public sector, like, do you mean like, yeah, like a public hospital and, and stuff like that, Mark? Yeah, VA, yeah. for instance, are public hospitals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. They do. Uh, so they're more open to like energy performance contracts and, right. and things like that. Um so it eventually like maybe they get you know very efficient if they if they enter into an agreement like that and you really go in and, and identify every opportunity whereas maybe a private you know facility would kind of pick pick and choose over time but I, I don't know which approach is better honestly but uh but those those are you know i mean you guys know all about that but um you really get to go in and fix everything when you when you enter into one of those so that's helpful and we partner with escos all the time and, and develop scopes and, and and go that route so we've come a long ways with uh with boilers then i mean 1960s you were you could be losing up to half the amount of fuel input right as waste mm -hmm. you know out of the box some boilers yep you're saying you know with condensing <laughs> boilers you can get up to where two percent is theoretically being lost it's amazing yeah, yeah. and you know it's funny as i was right in our you know podcast outline my mind was going to like exactly what mark said the the old unmaintained uh you know no, no bells and whistles boilers steam boilers for this conversation I, I really didn't even cross my mind for condensing boilers because i don't know it just didn't seem like if it's a condensing boiler where where do you look at for opportunities 
for that aside from well if it's not tuning. a condensing boiler how do you reach past the yeah 80s for efficiency very difficult unless right. you're doing water injection in the stack and then recondensing at the yeah uh, my mind just discharge. went to you know the yeah. under maintained unloved boiler in the boiler room that <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and that's more, I mean that's a that's the more common situation. That um, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I would presume. So, um and then as we talk about this, you know, I know Nick asked the question, you kind of answered it too, but fuel to steam efficiency versus combustion efficiency. Obviously, the the metric that we probably predominantly care about is like fuel to steam efficiency, right? How much units of energy go in versus how much units of energy go out of the boiler as steam versus just how efficient the combustion section of it is, right? Combustion efficiency yeah. is part of this discussion, but not the whole discussion. Yeah, definitely. Um, you have a lot of losses in the system, particularly if you're not maintaining the system. The biggest of which is is typically trap losses. You know, the steam traps are all over the system to protect the system, to get the condensate out of the system, prevent water hammer, you know, keep everything functioning properly. And, you know, for safety reasons, when those fail, they typically fail open unless they're um, clogged or something. Um, so once they fail, it's just an orifice and it's blowing steam through. And yeah. uh, and so those have to be regularly tested and repaired. So that's a big point of loss. Then there's like venting on your deaerator. There's thermal losses from, from insulated pipe, but also uh, piping, you know, insulation getting torn off and things just over the course of time. And then you have chemical treatment costs. Uh, water costs. Um, one opportunity is uh, like where you do boiler blowdown heat recovery. And um, part of that savings opportunity is reducing tempering water before you go to drain. So there's drain points right. in the system where they, maybe it's too hot to go to drain and then you're wasting water just to cool it off, which I can talk about later. We kind of get to that. But um, right. But yeah, there's there's just so many different losses that by the time you really get to the end, um, your your fuel to your fuel to, to point of use efficiency is uh, is uh, much less in oftentimes and much more complicated to determine as you guys just laid out right A very different system efficiency than combustion yeah Chase, Chase's first comment though about like to do uh, energy balance mass energy balance is really the the key to that so even if I'm doing just a simple uh energy audit the you know the first page in the boiler room is a blank that goes into and goes out of so uh, i can at least start to rough out an energy balance and that will lead you directly to where the energy is being wasted um it, you know what's going in to the boiler how much is condensate how much is makeup water what's going down the drain what's going up the stack what's going out the boiler's production and when you start to fit all that together, things will jump out at you. Yeah. And yeah. then if things don't add up, then you know you're missing something. Oh. <laughs> it's yeah, it's a really interesting exercise because you can take you take that heat and mass balance and then you can run different cases, um, you know, different uh operating loads and and then compare your your energy conservation measures that you're thinking about or developing against those cases and it, it like Mine is usually like I start with a heat and mass balance and then I just start adding like in an Excel sheet and I start adding tabs out for ECMs that I'm developing. And it's like everything is tied back to that heat and mass balance and, and uh, 
you know, and, and that's how we calculate it. But we, we did a big energy project for a regional hospital about six years ago and a big boiler plant and the boiler operators were, you know, really proud of their plant and how much condensate you return hundred percent. Now I've been in a hospital before there's autoclaves, there's, uh, kitchen laundry, hundred percent. Okay. Uh, how much makeup water? Um, about two and a half million gallons a month. I said, a month? Well, how can you be recovering all the condensate? Well, somewhere underneath the building, there's a leak. So we know there's a big pond under the building of condensate. I said, what? <laughs> so they're getting it. They're just not able to use it. <laughs> they're, they're not getting it. But I, I said, so we have a thermal imaging camera. Where do you think the pond might be? We can probably find it where the floor is warm. Oh, no, it's deeper than that. We can't find it. Uh, they had. Uh, I love the were, idea of them saying, claiming that they're returning it, but it's just. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's not, that's not even happening. But even if it was like it's <laughs> they're, they're claiming that they're returning it by sending it in deep into the earth. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Geothermal. <laughs> so to add to, to keep building on this conversation then you know mark you mentioned drawing your box right and chase and nick i guess you yep. call it you guys opine so you draw your box of your boiler and this is kind of taking it back to the basics but i don't know for any listeners that aren't you know experts in the in the steam boiler or boilers you have your energy in natural gas we'll say right where are all your losses on that boiler i know i have a, a small list in front of us do you have anything else to add to that for this conversation um i think that for the boiler itself like if you're just looking at the boiler yep. um, unless it's a bigger boiler but if you're talking about a fire tube boiler i don't know that i would do a heat and mass balance i would generally do one of the boiler uh room so okay yeah you have your your fuel going into the boiler Yep, flue gas coming out, but then you have your makeup water coming in, mm -hmm. your condensate return coming in, um, your steam used to the deaerator, your vent line out of the deaerator, uh, your blowdown line out of the boiler. So there's a lot of water flows, right? Uh, water and steam flows going on in the boiler room. Um, but if you're just doing the boiler, uh, it's more of a calculation than like doing a right, dry, right, right, right. You know? Yeah. Well, that makes sense. So doing it for the whole room per se because like you said there's a lot of inputs and outputs to account yeah. for yeah i always kind of looked at it like three stages too like you know the combustion efficiency you want to get a handle on and that can be measured you know most times so yeah yep. and you're looking at like chase said everything else in that system in that room and then with steam systems it's a whole different animal when you get out into the distribution you know that's where you got the pipes and the losses and prvs and, and traps and everything like that and that adds a whole different dimension to you know the final picture but Staying in that boiler room, oh, there's enough to keep you busy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it, if you do a an entire system heat and mass balance, I mean, it's like how granular do you get? I mean, you can make assumptions for things and start saying, well, we're probably going to get, you know, 5% losses here or what, you know. Um, so it, it's it's like, which is why I do it in Excel, because I don't, I just want to be able to customize, you know, everything that I'm, that I'm doing in there, but, um, but yeah, that's a great point. So what about 
energy conservation measures then? I know, Chase, you already kind of covered some of those um, low-hanging fruit ones in a way, right? Can we uh, back up a second, if, if I may? Yeah, like, so, yeah. I mean, the big losses are typically combustion, right? Right. That's where you're losing the most. I mean, like, how, how would you rank these, Chase, in your experience? I know it's, you know. Oh, that's a great question. Amalgamation, yeah. but do we have, yep. you know, stack losses next or blowdown? And then you have obviously radiation, whatever convection around the just you know the surfaces. Yeah, I, insulation, whatever you want to call that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as far as losses in at, at point of production or in the boiler room, yeah, I would say stack losses um, just due to uh, you know inefficient combustion, uh, like you said, um, blowdown losses. Um, there's you know poor water treatment or outdated blowdown controls will lead to excessive blowdown um and that's if, if you, for those of i guess the listeners that don't know what blowdown is the boiler has bottom you typically talk about surface blowdown and bottom blowdown surface blowdown is like a stream of water that you just let you release from the top of the boiler right near the level of the boiler and it's to remove like total dissolved solids in the boiler water that's and that's just like say again at the scum line where so if you're boiling a pot of water that the bubbles that form on top generally contain solids so you skim off that that uh scum line so it doesn't either build up or start to erode the surface of the um steaming drum that's right yep and that's uh and the amount of blowdown required is based on your water treatment right so whatever is coming in however many uh dissolved solids that that it has that's the amount of blowdown that you have to uh, reject from the boiler to get those out and it's a function of several things like i said the, the water treatment also your condensate return because your condensate is much purer than your makeup water um hopefully and uh yeah so typically you want around two to five percent of the boiler flow steam flow and so that's a lot of energy you're talking about just blowing five percent of your energy spent you know down the drain mm-hmm and sometimes it's poorly managed and um i mean i've i've worked on a boiler before where they were blowing down 19 percent on a huge boiler an industrial facility they're blowing down 19 percent just because they weren't on top of their water treatment and uh so so for every you know you're blowing 20 percent almost of your of your steam that you're of their energy that you're using you're blowing it out to the just to the ground to drain or whatever so I've got a couple of questions here, if I can. So this is primarily to keep the heat transfer surfaces, right, working efficiently, right? You remove that scale and build up and everything, blow down. That's right. It also will lead to uh, bubbling um, in, in the boiler. So it'll, it, you imagine like just a dirty river or something, right? Or you just have yep. this scum on top. Yep. It kind of gets like that or it just starts bubbling. And then those bubbles will actually escape into the steam line which is bad then then you have contaminated steam that's called carryover so if you if oh, that bubbling gets bad enough and gets dirty enough and it starts escaping into your steam then you're throwing contaminants down the steam line and you're jamming control valves and your you know your autoclaves are not cleaning things properly or whatever you know any anything that's using the steam is so there's probably- a risk in the distribution line from from bad blowdown and, and dissolved solids management so you have continuous blowdown and intermittent or for these large you know commercial industrial applications is well, that pretty much continuous 
right now we're just talking about the steam drum so the upper drum is mm-hmm. generally continuous yeah that's yeah, right okay no understood okay yep then that's just more uh like you said up on the top part drip down or sprayed down okay so your bottom drum then the mud yeah drum. so then your bottom drum you have bottom blow down and that's not that's really more to m- remove like sludge and things that settle down to the bottom and that's not a continuous waste stream so there's not as much efficiency opportunity there it's like or an operator i mean a lot of times it's automated but just an operator will go down go yeah they'll go down to the bottom blowdown valves open them uh you know count off whatever time they, they is in their procedure to do it and then um and then periodic close. maintenance effort then. yeah like okay. once a shift kind of thing and so that's not as uh conducive to recovering that energy because it's you know just every once in a while but the top the surface blowdown uh, or continuous blowdown they call it that's a continuous stream of energy that you can recover heat from and it's also like i mentioned earlier it's really hot so you can't just send it straight to drain typically you typically have a drain temperature limit of like 140 degrees Mm. and so even once it goes through the bottom blowdown tank and flashes off you're still at 212 degrees say and so you know you have to temper that drain water before it can go to drain and so that's another wasted you know stream of water so what do you do with that water you you would like preheat makeup water or condensate then coming in yeah that's that's exactly right so that's a that's a really common one that we're um looking at a lot of those right now is uh is it's called uh boiler blowdown heat recovery mm-hmm. but yeah so the the blowdown stream comes out instead of going to a blowdown tank and flashing an atmosphere you go to a pressurized blowdown tank and you flash uh to the deaerator so you you take the flash steam and send it to the deaerator so that offsets some of your steam use and then the drain is uh you know it's gonna be at, if your deaerator is five pounds or is gonna get 220 something degrees um that's gonna go out of the tank through a heat exchanger and and you're exactly right you would heat up like makeup water you get you could heat up any process that's available but the most common right. thing is that the so chase water. is it necessary to flash off the steam because i've seen a lot of heat exchangers piped up with shell and tube piped up direct and condensing everything and cooling the the um blowdown at preheating makeup water without a, a no, vent. Flat, no vent line I, I yeah well the ones that we're doing you you generally flash in the i think off. that's a probably a better practice and but i don't know there's there's an inherent safety requirement no no there's not there's no i mean you could flash it you could have it at atmosphere do the same setup have it at atmospheric pressure and just vent that um you know out the roof like like you're already doing probably but but once a, i mean so putting it through a, a heat exchanger with no vent we don't see steam coming out the other side of the heat exchanger i mean it's you know cool oh, okay i got 90 you. degrees okay I, I i didn't understand what you're saying yeah so you're talking about putting it straight into a heat exchanger and not yeah. Letting, no yeah. vent at all um, yeah, as long as you went to a blowdown tank after that, because yes. you know you don't want to send pressurized or blowdown water, even if even if it's cooled off. Maybe sometimes that heat exchanger doesn't have a load, and then it doesn't get cooled off. Yep, that's right. Um, yeah, so you could put it upstream in your blowdown tank and do it that way. So, like when I was reading on Energy.gov, which was a, another great resource for this discussion, 
and they say you know boiler boiler blowdown optimization limit amount of blowdown to only what is necessary they're basically saying that you know that skim blowdown just as little amount as possible basically is that you want to yeah that's it i mean there's outdated control methods for boiler blowdown that you know where you're blown down way too much Mm -hmm. so on the on the control side so when we're measuring total dissolved solids ph you know you're measuring conductivity and all that stuff the one of the and, and i did this for a while uh prior to that measurement you need to have a sample cooler so you can't just uh stick a conductivity probe into a boiler jacket it 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 won't last especially the good ones so you have to take water out of the typically on the blowdown line you inject either cold water um not inject but uh put a heat exchanger in to have cold water cooling the sample line and then it measures so i mean even the even the sample cooler is an opportunity for energy conservation but it's a lot of places just don't do that they don't have continuous monitoring they'll take a sample let it cool down in a you know a a beaker then make a measurement and then go back and tweak the uh, chemical treatment and based on the interval either between measurements or between tweaks a lot of things can go awry in a chemical treatment system that it's just not you know there's a little bit of alchemy in there not just chemistry because we've seen places where too much amines were put in all the steam traps basically became fossilized big capital and capital investment to replace all those so continuous measurement with good instruments is if you really want to optimize it that's the requirement not just uh start to wind down your blowdown because there's a there's a huge negative impact from either improper chemical treatment not enough or too much yeah exactly and that's uh yeah i would never recommend just turning down your your blowdown but if you do have a high blowdown uh it's something to analyze like why why you're blowing down 20 percent. yeah so are most operators these days using you know continuous monitoring for this yeah, I mean that's a common thing. There's still outdated uh blowdown systems. I mean, like one's called I mean, there's so some people are just doing manual blowdown and they're doing their surface blowdown like their bottom blowdown to where they yep. take their TDS measurement and they have a blowdown, a surface blowdown valve, and they just let it blow down for a while, then measure it again. Okay, we're down at some range below uh our set point, and then they let it creep back up. Yeah, so kind of like what Mark was describing then, interval type of testing uh yeah yeah okay yeah and then and then let it go for however many i don't know a month weeks no like a shit like several like a couple times a shift or something like or once a shift oh, okay. um, and then there's there's continuous blowdown which is why it's called continuous blowdown but there's these valves that have little markers on them and uh and and it's kind of the same idea except for they leave it open so they mark you know they they write down what marker they left it on, like what percent open or however the label on the valve is. And then they take a reading and then later in the shift, they go out, take a reading, and then they adjust the valve and they just keep a log of that. But even that, there's still a lot of waste because you're having to be conservative, you know, to keep it below where you need it to be. And so when you put in like a digitally controlled blowdown system uh, or automated blowdown system, then you, um, 
you know, you can ride exactly what your TDS level is what's supposed to be. That seems like a good opportunity. Yeah. And so a lot of, I mean, we did a, a paper mill in New England recently. We did a design for an automated blowdown control system and then a blowdown heat recovery downstream. And and the automated, the other advantage of the automated system in relation to the heat recovery is that it then smooths out the flow. So you have this predictable flow stream instead of an intermittent flow or, a you know, kind of a varying. Well, I guess it is varying, but it's just a smoother flow, which is obviously going to work better for a heat recovery, um, you know, opportunity. Well, and I, I think the value of automated blowdown is that it completely takes out the subjectivity and human error of, you know, oh, we can hopefully if you have two shifts, three shifts, everyone makes their measurements the same way. Everyone applies the right amount of adjustment. And that just is typically not the case. And the, the steam systems in totality are such a huge investment. I mean, I always equate to the car uh, analogies because we are the building hot rodders. Back in the day, as you increase the speed of your car, you had to manually adjust the ignition spark advance. We don't do that. We stopped doing that. We, we made it automated. And now it's electronic because even a distributor with vacuum advance and springs and weights was not as accurate as electronic. So the advancements that we've made technically merit the implementation of automated blowdown, not only to improve efficiency, but also to take out the human error. You know, and, and that can probably be the perfect segue into the next thing, which would to me would be stack losses, right? And um, combustion efficiency. Kind of the same discussion in a way or no? Yeah. Similar? Yeah. Well, I think that I think the better segue would be into like burner efficiency. Okay. How yeah. do we automate burner control to really improve efficiency and stack losses or, you know, the physical, how do we get the heat from the stack back into the yeah, 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 yeah. So burner efficiency. Yep. Yeah. Related. What do we want to say about that? That also to me seems like it's one of those things where people mm, don't or periodically monitor, don't maintain, right? And your combustion efficiency can be very poor, which is a lot of wasted energy. Um, tell me about like O2 trim and, and combustion efficiency and how that plays into this discussion. Yeah, definitely. So I think that at the bare minimum for a burner, you're going to want to be having the burner tuned periodically. Um, right. Some people do it yearly. I think I would recommend doing it quarterly because, you know, as your ambient temperature changes, that throws off your mm-hmm. tuning. So mm-hmm. seasonally is a, a good idea. And so that's kind of a minimum uh, requirement. And that's well, what basically- kind of things are being done when you tune the burner. Uh, you know, it's like a, it's a serviceable maintenance. So it's like a, a service technician will come out, uh, if you don't have anybody on uh staff that's able to do it, usually one of the burner technicians will come out and they will adjust the mechanical linkages between the gas valve and the, uh, combustion air damper. They'll adjust those linkages and try to get the burner just firing at an optimal rate. And, uh, the main thing that they're adjusting to is O2 percentage in your stack. So you want an optimal O2 percentage. 
so I just want to give people when I when I tell people why we do O2 trim, I always give them the analogy of, you know, combustion is a chaotic, high speed process. It's a lot. Of, it's a lot like speed dating kind of stuff. The whole objective is to make sure that every carbon molecule gets attached to oxygen. So as it's going through the boiler uh, on the combustion side, there has to be enough oxygen to make sure that every uh, carbon molecule, you know, has a, has a, a pairing connection. If not, we have a rich condition, which results in black on the inside of the boiler, which is sooting. We don't want that. If we use too much air because air is not 100% oxygen, then we have all this inert gas that we take into the boiler, heat up, and send out. So ultimately, we want to have the barest amount of excess air possible to ensure that every carbon molecule has a connection. That's why we measure stack O2 to say if we have too much excess O2, we're putting all this inert air through the boiler that we don't need to, heating it up and sending it right at the stack. Well, it's like a a vehicle, right? Like your carburetor yeah, tuning, you know? It's exactly Yeah, you're going to drive up a hill. Well, now your car's running differently, and that's why yep. we use all these advanced... Uh, O2, O2 yeah, sensors. Yeah, O2 sensors, all that thing. good stuff. That yeah. was the same... Yeah, that would be my analogy for it, which made perfect sense and why you do yep. that. So, I want to point out that, uh, you know, there's a difference between excess air and O2. So excess air is yep. the actual air. Mm-hmm. Um, so Correct. Like if you have 15% excess air, which is pretty typical for natural gas, um, that corresponds to around 3% O2 in the stack. So O2 is actually measuring oxygen molecule. That's right. Okay. And this process is done over the full operating range of the burner? Yeah, they do. They go in, they'll say, okay, 25% firing, 50, 75%, 100%, and and check where, where the O2 is at all those ranges, you know, over so i would say with combustion tuning between combustion tunings like over that operating span you're probably going to get around six percent o2 like average by the time uh you're at all different operating loads they can't get right at three percent at all loads usually you know maybe they get three percent at high fire and then they're getting four percent at 25 percent fire you know something like that yep okay Um, but so by the time the linkages loosen up and things and, and ambient temperatures change, by the next time you get a, a combustion tuning, you're maybe getting an average of 6% O2. And so there's these systems, they're called combustion or O2 trim systems that measure uh, the O2 in the stack and adjust. Um, you can have a parallel positioning system, which adjusts the fuel gas valve and the, uh, the damper for the combustion air fan. And, and really tunes it like continuously that way. Or you can have a VFD-based based system which turns the combustion air fan up and down and basically modulate combustion air to really get the ideal amount uh, at all operating loads and it covers all ambient conditions. And it's it's essentially like having a, a souped-up combustion tuning all the time because it's yeah. – right. you, can, you can reasonably anticipate getting down to like 2.5% O2 – at all firing ranges uh, and all ambient temperatures and any changes in gas property. And, and so there's a lot of savings there. And like I mentioned, there's, you can, if you do the VFD one and you're operating at partial loads, a lot of the time there's motor savings that are significant. Right. So 
but it's not just it's not just the motor savings it's the fuel uh the, you know the combustion efficiency and mark mentioned like you if you're not operating efficiently you're getting soot in the boiler and so that's reducing your heat transfer and then further driving down your uh, boiler efficiency so there's a there's a lot to be gained so i understand you know for larger uh steam systems boiler plants with full-time operators and everything you know you'd have a lot of these automatic controls or even the quarterly tuning but any recommendations for take a typical school district all across america you know they have all these boilers they're not manned but you know are they still advised well to do get a combustion tune up every year you know, i, I would switch them to o2 trim yeah i've been pushing and if you look at the cash flow so like say that the technician costs two thousand dollars or something to come out you know that is much less than a forty thousand dollar o2 trim system but you you are paying that two thousand dollars quarterly so it adds up if you look at like 10-year cash flows it's much better to do an o2 trim system and i mean then you're reducing well, you your can see a larger rate. system sure now even on even on smaller systems so here's an example so we went into this isn't a uh, this isn't a, a commercial thing. It's a, it is an industrial plant, but it's a fairly small boiler. It's a three hundred horsepower boiler. Yeah. We went in and they had around eleven percent O two, which is pretty bad, but it's not uncommon. Like the linkages yeah. get loose and and things are not you know if you're not on top of it, it's common to find burners that are operating like that. You put an O two trim system in, and it was like forty five thousand dollars a year for a 300 horsepower boiler and it's probably a $40,000 project. Uh, wow. Part of yeah. it is that boiler operators are scared to death of sooting up their boilers. That's like a horrible bad day. It, it, you know, then cleaning, brushing, you know, shut down all that stuff is bad. Nick, remember, I mean, I don't know if you recall like a Cleaver Brooks burner has a whole series of little set screws that a spring sits yeah. on top of. And as you turn down the boiler, those springs underneath, I mean, those set screws underneath the spring determine the matching curve for the air damper. So once those are set in place, I mean, maybe they get touched, probably never. As long as the boiler's not sooting up, you know, okay, it's good enough. Maybe so 5% uh, O2 is great in many cases with a you know an old system like that and to chase's point if you're really consuming a lot of excess air as more traditional or how do you want to say uh guys that have been through a couple of sooted boilers and don't want to go through that again will tend to want to be more conservative and just use some excess air it costs too much to shut down and clean boilers all that stuff I, there's We've we've done a lot of O2 trims and um, they're definitely well worth the investment. Interesting. Yeah. Uh and, and I would I'd like to throw out there too, uh just something for the listeners to consider that, that soot is dangerous. I read a story yeah. recently about a guy tried to clean his boiler himself and the soot blew up in his face and he got burned real bad. So that like that soot when you get it stirred up in the air, it's it's flammable. Mm -hmm. Um it's, it's basically explosive. unburned combustible. So yeah. that's, you, know, you can combust them after the fact. So um, anyway, something to think about. So, so far, um, blow down heat recovery and combustion or a burner tuning, pretty high level 
energy conservation measures to look for if you're going to go into a boiler plant for a steam boiler. I'm gathering. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and you touched just... on um, like economizers. That's definitely an opportunity if they're there. I do find that I'll, I'll when I go into a boiler plant, uh, this is just my experience. Maybe maybe you guys have seen other, but if I go into a boiler plant and I see that they don't have an economizer, I'm like, all right, here we go. Let's let's check this out. And then you come to find out that they're frequently operating at partial loads or or they don't really use that boiler or you know there's some reason that it doesn't work so it oh, that's interesting a, a disappointment for <laughs> that's my personal experience like but uh but if you if you are operating a boiler at full load um oftentimes and you don't have an economizer and you got and you have a stack temperature like if, if you're you know it's it's uh it's kind of a no-brainer really I think it's if you can get a 5% increase in efficiency, it's like a two-year payback is the rule of thumb. Um, hmm. So, and These are for year-round operations, obviously running at substantial loads. Exactly. Gotcha. And, and that's another yeah. factor. I mean, when you go to partial loads, um, sometimes the economizer can, can get your flue gas temperature down too low. So just because you have... Uh, you have to look at when you're evaluating the economizer, you have to make sure that it makes sense at all operating loads and you're not going to be condensing in your stack afterwards. So um, when we talk about economizer for the listeners, because as I was doing all my research on this, are we using this, and maybe the answer is both, for preheating combustion air or is it pre or reheating or adding heat to uh, makeup water or uh, condensate return? Um, that's a great point. So I, when I say economizer, I'm typically talking about flue gas to feed water. Um, okay. So this is downstream of the deaerator. You're going from your boiler feed water pumps straight into the economizer yep. and then out of the economizer into the boiler. Another common thing is a combustion air preheater. So that is... So they're de um, different things in, in the conversation. Yeah, totally yeah. different. Yep, yep. But then you're, then you're using the flue gas to preheat your combustion air. Mm -hmm. And that gives you some efficiency. If you think about it, you have this big mass of air going into the burner, there is an energy component just to heat up that mass of air through the combustion. So the hotter the air going in, you know, the more or, or the less energy is required to heat it up. So do you do both or can you do both or do you usually do one or, or the other? Uh, I've done both on um, industrial boilers. I, I haven't seen... Any on, uh, yeah, on a smaller boiler tend not to make sense, but industrials, utilities, boilers have those in place in most cases. Just because the stack temperatures and there's so much energy going off the so stack much that energy. You, you can right. recover for both or right. whatever. Yeah. And this but, is done via runaround loops typically? Well, so Chase, you want to talk about recuperators, stack recuperators? Um, this is for combustion air then, right? When we're yes. talking about, yeah, okay. Yeah. So like a recuperator is like a, I don't use that term a lot, but it's like a, it's just like a straight heat exchanger, right? So you're it's a pipe in a pipe, you yeah, sleeve. another yeah. pipe around your stack and then duct that to the burner fan or the forced draft fan and preheat the combustion air that's going into the boiler passively. Basically it's pretty relatively low cost. Mm-hmm moderately effective zero maintenance yeah you can pick up 100 150 degrees of 
uh, combustion air temperature with a good recuperator. And they're not, uh, you know, onerous in terms of cost. See, that seemed like a no-brainer to me kind of thing. Well, if you, if you look, even I've been in a lot of old boiler rooms and you know, the old-time uh, operators have taken a piece of uh, 12-inch round duct and yeah. sent it up to the top of the boiler room and ducted it down to there. I mean, yeah. they know what to do. Yeah. Ducted it right down to the forced draft fan. Mm-hmm. And so that's just an air-to-air heat exchange, Mark. Yes. Okay, so yep. that seems like you're... It's not even really a heat exchanger. All it's doing is picking up the surface temperature of the stack. Right. And as you pass ambient air over that, you know, through that space, it's picking up the air off the stack. It's okay. like a ja- like a jacket. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, you can have, like, actual heat exchangers as well. Yep. And then you guys have on here the regenerative uh, air preheater, and, and those are interesting, too. Do you have a preference? I've only ever seen regenerative air preheaters. They, they're also called, or at least the ones I've seen are called Lungstrom air heaters. Um, I've only ever seen those on like coal plants. Hmm. So it's basically a big uh, rotating section of fins uh, or plates, and they rotate into the hot combustion air and then rotate to the other side into the, into the not combustion air, sorry, the flue gas, and then mm-hmm. rotate into the other side into the cold flue gas. And it literally just, the combustion air picks up heat from the hot plates. So it's not, it's not really a heat exchanger. It's like, it's like a, it's like like a heat therm- wheel. thermal storage or whatever, yeah. you know, like it's, yeah. it's taking the heat and moving it over. So, yep. uh, and those are really cool looking and the, and the ones that I've seen are huge, but I, I don't, I'm not aware of them uh, in these smaller boilers. Maybe they do exist, but no. I haven't seen. So you would see more of just like a recuperative air preheater for a smaller boiler. Yeah. Recuperative or just a straight, like, heat exchanger or something but i, I mm-hmm. think the recuperative ones are the most we've seen a bunch in steel and in glass plants and things like that and some are actually static where they stack up you know a giant uh masonry wall of mm. uh, fire brick and then we'll cha- divert the airflow over it so the airflow you know there's two block two sections in section one it's coming in over the uh, block wall to the a combustion side and the other side it's leaving and then after the they call it a checker gets so hot they'll switch the reverse the airflow dampers so that the uh, mass the thermal mass of the uh, masonry will then heat preheat combustion air and the other side will absor- absorb heat but yeah they're they're expensive i mean and generally not suited to stuff that commercial or even mid-size industrial so of these things we've covered so far, are these all like um, pretty standard, uh, I don't know, energy conservation measures for you guys? Like if you're walking into a, a boiler plant, A, do you see like are a lot of facilities already utilizing what we've talked about? And do you see like more or less of one or another? And then is there any like what else do you have to add for the conversation for, you know, energy conservation kind of gearing around this discussion? What's the intricate, fancy, you know, doesn't often get done, but works a lot kind of thing, or is there not that? Um, in the boiler plant itself, I would say the automated blowdown controls, blowdown heat recovery, and then like boiler control upgrades are um, probably the most common. You, then you have things like um, optimizing your deaerator. So 
um, your your deaerator has a, a vent stream that allows the air that's taken out of the feed water to escape. So that mm-hmm. has to go somewhere. So you have this vent vent line, and it's un- unavoidable. You lose some steam through that line, but you want to optimize that as much as you can. Um, that's really just like a serviceable maintenance thing. It's not a it's not a huge um, mm-hmm. scope, but that's something to stay on top of. And water treatment. One that I really like that's simple is to change your combustion air source. So if you get a 20 degree, and this is true of the combustion air preheater opportunity as well, but if you get 20 degree hotter combustion air, you get about a half a percent increase in efficiency. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a boiler room that maybe has a tall ceiling and it's like a lot of heat up in, at the roof level, you can just duct the inlet of your combustion air fan uh, up to the roof and, and get some significant savings, just kind of recapturing like those radiant losses that are lost to the room, I guess. A lot of steam pipes up there at the ceiling often too, you know? Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. And then you're also pulling air. Like, so say if you are conditioning the room for the operator, I don't know if that, how common that is, but you're also pulling hot air out and blowing it out of the stack instead of like any air that's been conditioned or whatever. And and getting better circulation in the room, but it's kind of a simple project that you can get pretty big savings on. So, Chase, do you guys do a lot with um, uh, controls on the boilers in terms of like two element or three element uh, feed water control and those kind of things, or you look more at the physical operation of the boiler, you know, the uh, combustion efficiency and that kind of thing? Um, we haven't done much of that. Uh, not that I wouldn't look at it, but the main thing that that I recommend a lot as far as controls upgrades is the O2 trim system. Uh, yep. Another one that shouldn't be overlooked if you're having multiple boilers is sequencing controls. If you don't have, if you have outdated sequencing controls, just operating the boilers in a way that they are opter- operating at, you know, the best possible load point for the boiler is. Uh, is a great way to save energy. So those, as far, when I think about controls upgrades for efficiency, I'm thinking about sequencing controls and O2 trim usually. I agree. I mean, you know, doing two element or three three element control just gives you faster response to highly volatile steam loads, but isn't really a energy conservation strategy. Yeah. I know we're kind of nearing the end of this discussion, I think, unless you guys have more to add, but just a few more questions, especially for our listeners. And, and we've covered this as we've gone along, and I've actually been quite impressed. But, you know, the uh, typical ROIs for some of these conservation measures, if it's O2 trim or, um, you know, combustion air preheating, economizes all that, it, a lot of instances, very reasonable for, for a facility. Yeah, I would say so. And and you guys know, I mean, it's there's a lot of factors that go into it. It's like, and we talked about earlier, like your um, your fuel to end use efficiency yeah. or actual cost of steam. There's, you know, you have your water treatment costs and you have your fuel costs and you have your water costs and your sewer costs and your system losses. And so it's, it's uh, you have to kind of understand all that to even start to put your finger on what the the return on an investment is. I will say that the, uh, the no brainers are always trap maintenance and insulation. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that we didn't mention now that's getting real popular is uh, trap monitoring. Um, So 
the cost of that has come down to where it's more reasonable. Uh, it, historically, hmm. only like large, you know, plants would have something like that. But now it's coming down to a, a, a place where people are really uh, biting on that more. Just to know if your trap is stuck or leaking or what have you. Then. Yeah. So yeah. like there's different methods to do it, but um, you can do it thermally or you can do it through ultrasound. There's, there's different mm, systems, yep. but basically, yeah, like an example would be an ultrasound one would be a, a clamp on little device that you mount downstream of the trap and it monitors the, the operation of the trap and then alerts you. Well, it, it sends all that data up to the cloud where you can log in on a portal and check your trap population and it alerts you when they fail. Is that an Armstrong or SART? Do you have a manufacturer name for that? I haven't seen the ultrasonic. The one that we use a lot right now, we're, we is a Steam IQ. Okay. Um, we're capable of installing other ones and it, it kind of depends like how they want it to integrate it, or if they want it to integrate with their controls or if they want to keep it totally separate. Like the CMYQ one is like a totally different platform. So you're just on the cloud and you don't have to integrate any of that data into your existing controls. It's just, you know, a totally separate yep. thing to log into. Yeah. But we can, uh, we can use different systems. Our, our um, go-to system and and we're like the preferred vendor for it is uh, SteamIQ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So that's a good one. Um, but, but just general trap maintenance is a no brainer. Mm -hmm. Trap monitoring makes sense for certain clients. Insulation is a no brainer. And then these other like boiler blood on heat recovery has a great return. O2 trim has a great return. Improving your condensate return generally has a good return. And then other things just start kind of being like case by case, like how much is it operating? Right. Even the O2 trim, if you're at full load all the time, uh, you get less return on that. So it, O2 trim is actually better, particularly with the VFD version, if you are going down to partial loads, then you get that motor savings. You don't have to necessarily have a swinging loads. If you're always at 60% load, then you're getting that motor savings too, right? But mm -hmm. but yeah, so it's it's all over. But I would say a lot of these that we're talking about are, are two or three year paybacks a lot of the time. That's impressive to me. I don't know. It yeah. just seems yeah. like it's it's no brainer stuff. You go into a facility at that point. Yep. Yeah, it's you know you got you like especially when we partner with Escos. You know they put together this big package of opportunities, and um, I think people just neglect their steam systems a little bit more than other systems sometimes. So mm -hmm. there's often like some some you know very attractive fruit. projects. Yeah. Yeah. Chase, yeah. what about the simple, we were in a facility not too long ago where they made 150 pounds steam, but all of their uh, consumption was reduced. Highest PRV setting was 65 pounds. What about a simple pressure reduction? Yeah, that's it. That's another big one that we do. If you can reduce pressure in any section of the system, think about all your losses, your thermal losses. Yep. Your leaks, your your losses through traps, which are also sort of leaks, um, all that is reduced. So the lower pressure you're at, the less losses you have. So yeah, that's that's actually a really common one too that yeah we haven't mentioned yet. Yeah, you can put in a, a digital PRV system or, or you know valve and and uh, and reduce that. And you can do that like seasonally too. Like maybe a certain system doesn't need as much 
uh, pressure, you know, in the summer or whatever, and you can turn it down. But uh, yeah, that's a good opportunity. It's like a reset schedule like you do for hot water. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You know, I know we're talking about point of production here with this, but it's still the you know basic rules. If you were going into a facility, you'd obviously be looking out in the distribution system to mm-hmm. you know, perhaps first, right? Reduce the load. What do you really need there? And even some of the things back in the boiler plant, it would seem to me sometimes you might find that the stack heat recovery that you first thought might be a good opportunity may not be there once you do some of these other things is that could that be accurate i'm thinking about tuning the boiler really or the o2 trim and maybe that stack temperature is you know not as high as as it was initially before any interventions were made yeah that's a great point i mean if you're um if you're basing basing a project off of a certain uh end use efficiency and then you increase the end use efficiency uh, in other ways, then your return uh, gets extended, right? So uh, yeah, that's a great point. I I haven't seen a lot of like projects killed because we went out and did all the trap repairs or something like that. It's still, if it makes sense, it, it usually doesn't die because we improve efficiency by a couple percent or something, but- um, Oh no, probably just highlights the, the most attractive options to pursue. And I think yeah. we've talked about, there are plenty, you know, just even within that small footprint or large footprint of a, of a boiler plant. And I'm thinking more, I mean, Chase, you see more of the large and mark large industrial type of operations. And I'm thinking more about the mid-level, you know, small commercial light industrial. Yeah. Um, and that's that. So that also brings it back to the heat and mass balance. So if you're putting in, say you're looking at putting in a combustion air preheater and an economizer, like we mentioned earlier, like you can look at how those would affect each other, or maybe you're putting in a feed water heater and, you know, or whatever, you can just kind of plug that into the system and then see how the total system is impacted. Yeah. So it makes steam system so interesting. I think that dotted yeah. line has got to be pretty big if you really want to look at the system. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's definitely different than like an electrical component where you just, if you're saving the kilowatt hours, it's not going to change if you do something <laughs> on another component, you know, I mean like a lighting retrofit just, <laughs> yeah, you're not you know, changing simple. like your other electrical loads. From, right. You know. So what are the qualifiers if, you know, a facility, industrial, commercial, whatever, call you and say, Hey, we want you to come check out our, um, steam system, right? Like what, what makes it worthwhile to pack up and go out there and look at it? Are there any, you know, pre prerequisites that you need to see before you go out there and say, yeah, we can probably help you out or, isn't this a whole nother podcast? I don't know. Can it, it be? be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I did a, I did a presentation turn, recently on a, just like our process of an industrial steam system assessment. We specifically talked about industrial, but it's uh, similar. But yeah, I guess high level answer though is, uh, you know, we, we give them a questionnaire that mm-hmm. um, helps, you know, the, the amount of information we get back is usually you know, not as much as we would want, but they give you some idea of, of where they're at, where they're operating. You talk about the common opportunities like traps, like when was the last time you had a trap uh, survey and done that maintenance and stuff. And so you get a sense of like, you know, that there's something there that, you, right. you know, that there's some opportunity and then uh, hopefully find more, you know, so. My qualifiers are big, old, ugly. I'm well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I just didn't know you say, okay, well, you're going to give me your, give me your utility bills. What's your energy costs? Um, do a quick swag of the, you know, 
EUI, energy use index, where do they fall on average, stuff like that. I don't know if that happens a lot before you pack up and go out there and look at things or not. Well, I mean, we do as much. It's all different. You know, it's like how much um, upfront support are you getting from the client? But right. I mean, generally, I feel confident that I can go to most facilities and find something. Sometimes, like I was uh, talking to, uh, you know, a pulp and paper mill recently, and they are, I was I was excited because we're talking, he was wanting to engage, and then come to find out, like, they're buying steam from next door, uh, from, from a facility next door, and then he's, like, constantly maintaining their traps, like, they're testing their traps, like, on a monthly basis and repairing them. Not much um, you can do then. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the insulate, he said the insulation is in decent shape and I'm like, we, he wanted to engage, but I'm like, I don't know. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's nothing yeah. there. Yeah. So yeah. every once in a while there's something like that, but if, but most facilities, it's like, if we're having a conversation, like they, they are aware that they need some support. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's usually something there. Well, that's good. What do you guys think? Should we wrap this episode up? I think we're going to fall over, or right about our okay. hour mark. Whatever you say. Well, I mean, we can keep the discussion going. I think I think it just warrants another episode, quite honestly. I can't disagree. Uh, uh, there's a lot more things to talk about. <laughs> there's, there's a lot more. And, and people always ask me, why are we trying to preheat the combustion air when you look at it? So we have to go back to the hot rod scenario again. Yeah, you want cold but combustion air for your car. You want cold car. combustion yeah. air. And, and even when you go to uh, a turbine, there's actually you know, pre-coolers for turbine air, but there you're basically looking at forced induction on a turbine or, you know, forced induction on a turbo. But with, you know, um, atmospheric or basically barely above atmospheric pressures, you get a lot more out of the combustion air preheating than you would by putting a denser air charge. Well, the denser air is more for volume right i mean that's yeah so we don't we're not trying to push strain yeah we're not trying to ramp up our boiler we're trying to optimize it right so right that's right great point guys yeah that was yeah with that being said i hope our listeners enjoyed the episode I, i don't mean to cut it off i think we can just keep talking about it but i think we're at a pretty good point for the discussion you know at hand for this episode and um, thank you, Chase, very much for joining us again. I, I think we're going to keep having you on for some more discussions because this is very informative. Um, and I th- hopefully our listeners enjoy the conversation as much as we do. So, Well, this all started with this concept of uh, the question, is anybody still making steam? I know. There? I think we've determined yes, and there's plenty of opportunities with yeah, it. Yeah, and we, we just well, got to keep talking about it, I think. But it, So what happens, though, when natural gas is banned. <laughs> it's going to be electric then. Uh, you okay. saying, will they still make steam or will they just... Yeah, I think yeah, the same principles, do, yeah, the at, same principles at apply. Seven just, times the cost per million BTU? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, there'll <laughs> be enough solar panels out there to offset it. They'll be okay, the that's enough. Moment. I've had enough. I give up. There <laughs> <laughs> you go, guys. Or a nuclear plant will be making a, enough electricity for it. I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot. So, alrighty, Chase, thank you very much, and Nick and Mark, thank you very much uh, to our listeners. I hope you enjoyed it, and have a great day. Bye.